Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Everyone tonight. Everyone, everyone doing well, I hope. My name is Matt Kressel. I co-host the Fantastic Fiction and KGB series with Ellen Datlow. Welcome. Uh, this series is hosted on the third Wednesday of every month. Uh, it's always free. We never charge a cover. Uh, all we ask is that you buy a drink hard or soft and uh, tip your bartenders who are working hard to keep you hydrated. Uh, the series has been going strong since the late 90s. Um, Ellen has been hosting it here for how long, uh, would you say? I always ask if she knows. Yeah. At least since the it's, dawn it's, of time. It's, <laughs> Nick said that, not me. Uh, fi- at least 15 years. I've been doing it since uh, almost 10, about nine years now. And uh, so we, uh, we tip the bartenders, we take the guests out for dinner afterwards, and we give them a small um, honorarium stipend for their time. And uh, we, we've had a few fundraisers over the years. We've had like two or three. And uh, we're going to do another one soon. And the, the last few fundraisers we've had, we've had some really cool prizes. Uh, we've had a car- carnivorous plant terrarium. Uh, a lot of signed books. Um, we've had uh, uh, tuckerizations where they, they write your name into a short story. Uh, Neil Gaiman has donated uh, numerous keyboards. Apparently, he wrote Sandman on all of them. Um, <laughs> Stuff like that. So, um, yeah, like it, we we have uh, various prizes that you could. Uh, we do. We, we, I think we're going to do it through Kickstarter. And if, you, if you're familiar with Kickstarter, you basically donate, and then you get you get something in return for your donation. Uh, so we're going to do that. I think in in May around oh, thereabout. So uh, uh, look for that. We'll we'll post about it on Facebook and Twitter, and we, we hope you'll you'll donate. Uh, and help us out and help keep the series going strong for, you know, another 10, 20 years. It's been going since the late 90s, and we, we want to go, you know, until the, until the 2090s, hopefully. I mean, maybe maybe we'll all be, like, you know, cyborgs by then and still alive. So you, don't, you don't know. You don't know. We'll be radioactive. Radioactive. Hope not. Um, our two readers tonight are uh, Michael Sisko and Nicholas Kaufman. Um, I just want to, uh, before we get to the readers, just announce, uh, well, first... We have books for sale in the back. Uh, Nick Kaufman has uh, Dying is My Business and Die and Stay Dead for sale in the back from Word Bookstore. Allison's our uh, bookseller from Word, Jersey City in the back. So uh, please, uh, at the break, go and uh, buy a copy of those books. And also Michael Sisko has The Wretch of the Sun for sale as well. So um, both authors have books for sale. Please support the authors and you support Word Bookstore, which is an independent local bookstore. Um, always really supportive of the series. Uh, coming up uh, in the next few months, next month we have uh, Nova Ransuma, Kini Ibura Salam reading for us. 
April 19th, Seth Dickinson and Laura Ann Gilman. May 17th, Sam Miller and E.C. Myers. June 21st, Catherine Valente and Sonny Moraine. July 19th, Karen Hewler. August, August 16th, yay. <laughs> Usually people clap at like each month, but if you just want to clap at Karen, that's awesome. Karen's awesome. Um, I know. August 16th, Raj and Connor. September 20th, Catherine Vaz and Chris Sharp. And uh, so yeah, we got a great year lined up. Hope you'll join us for, for that. Always, always the third Wednesday of every month. Our first reader is Nicholas Kaplan. Nick's work has been nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, a Thriller Award, and a Shirley Jackson Award. His novel, Dying Is My Business, from St. Martin's Press, was selected for the Los Angeles Times Holiday Book Gift Guide. And the sequel, Die and Stay Dead, received a starred review from Publishers Weekly. His latest novel is In the Shadow of the Axe, which is what you're reading from tonight, right? Yeah. Um, out now from Crossroad Press with an introduction by Laird Barron. Here's Nick Kaufman. Thank you, Ellen and Matt. Uh, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, it's a pleasure to be reading at the Fantastic Fiction at KGB series again. Um, I hope you all had a good Valentine's Day yesterday. Uh, it's, uh, I'm delighted to be here with the great Michael Sisko, uh, reading our most romantic stories for you. Um, uh, so actually, I'm going to be reading from my latest novel, In the Shadow of the Axe, uh, which came out this past October from Crossroad Press. Uh, the novel, unfortunately, is currently only available as an ebook. Um, I was hoping to have physical copies available for sale tonight, but the print edition has been delayed. Uh, so if you like what you hear, uh, just keep in mind the novel is only as far away as your phone. Uh, now, I've read from this novel at two other reading series since it came out, uh, Daniel Brown's Exceptional Nighttime Logic series uh, and the Hip Lit series, which was an incredible experience. Uh, it was in Bushwick, uh, in a circus training facility, in an unmarked building, down an unlit and abandoned stretch of road I can only assume was named Murder Alley. <laughs> if I ever write a murder mystery, I'm going to set it there. Um, but it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, however, tonight uh, I'm going to read a different part of the novel than I read at those series, so if you were there, this will be new to you. Uh, in the Shadow of the Axe is set in the 19th century in a German mountain village of Helmberg. Uh, and part of the novel has to do with the necromancer who lives in a <laughs> castle in the mountains and has for years been kidnapping people from the village for reasons unknown. And so a group of villagers, uh, each of whom have lost someone, uh, decide to band together and raid the castle in order to put a stop to the necromancer's reign of terror. And this chapter details some of what befalls the raiding party when they get to the necromancer's castle. Black Easter, 1826. Two crossed axes, similar to those that stood above the entrance to the courtyard, had been carved into the wooden double doors of Castle Carnstock, made to look as if they were crossing over the seam. Standing in the back of the group, Father Johann Vierick watched Luther Mulhausen, Baron Lang, and Edwin Roebling smash the doors open with a battering ram. Luther divided the men into ten groups, uh, into two groups, ten to go inside and five to remain outside to pile the hay, twigs, and barrels of oil from the carts around the perimeter of the castle and then wait for his word. 
Johann could see the apprehension in those five men's eyes at the thought of waiting out in the open. They wanted to set torch to the kindling now and run back to the village. He couldn't blame them, not with hundreds of blackbirds perched on the castle walls and battlements staring down at them like that. The emptiness of the bird's eyes made cold sweat pool at the small of his back. Father, you're with us, Luther said, motioning him forward. Johann joined him, and as they moved towards the door, he clutched his Bible with one hand and grasped the silver cross hanging around his neck with the other. In front of him, Henry Mantell cracked open his double-barreled rifle and slid two bullets from his pocket into the chambers, then crossed the threshold into the castle. Johann followed, wishing he had a rifle too. The dagger hidden in his boot felt small and useless all of a sudden. Inside, a massive hall extended into the darkness, its walls soaring upward to an arched ceiling some 30 feet above them. The first stars of evening now visible through the high vaulted windows. The men moved forward slowly, their footsteps echoing off the stone walls. It made the castle sound empty, Johann thought, as lifeless as a tomb. Two parallel rolls of marble statues formed a corridor that led down the center of the hall, twisted, nightmarish things with gaping mouths, crooked limbs, and smooth planes of stone where their eyes should be. Whoever had carved these grotesqueries had been mad, surely. Johann was already on edge when a hint of movement by the wall caught his eye. He turned toward it quickly. Out of reach of the torches, the shadows shrouding the wall seemed infinite, impenetrable. He tapped Baron's shoulder in front of him and said, Over there, give it some light. Baron swung his torch around. There was nothing there, just a simple wall. And yet Johann could have sworn he saw the shadows retreat from the light slower than they should have, sliding back along the stones like serpents. Shapes churned in the darkness when Baron pulled his torch away again, things that looked like faces and hands in Johann's imagination. He shuddered and tried to get a hold of himself. There was nothing there, he told himself. Nothing. At the far end of the hall was a big throne-like wooden chair, its armrests ending in carved roaring lion's heads. It sat across from the cold marble fireplace, and above the mantel was an enormous bronze-framed mirror, its glass smeared dark with dirt and dust, the crossed axes of the House of Carnstock adorning each corner. Off to one side of the hall, a grand staircase led up to a second-floor balcony that ran the width of the room. There's no one here, Edwin said. Upstairs, Luther said. We all saw the light in the tower. He's here. I know it. Staying at the rear of the group as they climbed the steps, Johann heard a soft whispering behind him. He turned and once again saw nothing but shadows that seemed to slither and grope. He clutched his Bible closer. Did you hear that? He whispered. Directly ahead of him, Henry Mantell replied, Hear what? <clears throat> Voices, Johann said. He glanced over the banister. Whispers. Henry stopped and listened. I don't hear anything. Johann didn't hear anything either. The sound had died away, and now the shadows sat motionless. It's only your nerves, Henry said, and started climbing the steps again. But Johann felt it in the way his skin prickled. It was more than just nerves. Something was here with them. The steps ended at the balcony, part of a long corridor lined with doors. Barand looked up and down the corridor and said, I don't see another staircase. How are we supposed to get up to the tower? The stairs must be behind one of these doors, Luther said. He opened the first one and Baron poked his torch inside, revealing only an empty cobwebbed room. Johann thought he saw the shadows shrink back fitfully from the torchlight. 
Shrill hissing whispers filled the air, and this time everyone heard them. What is that, Baron asked, wincing at the sound. Spirits, Johann said, clutching his cross. He's filled this castle with the spirits of the dead. Ignore it. Just get these doors open, Luther ordered. They lined up in front of the doors, each taking one and opening them in succession, but all they found were more empty rooms. When Johann's turn came, he let go of his cross and pulled the dagger from his boot. Taking a deep breath, he turned the knob and opened the door. Without a torch of his own, there was only darkness on the other side, but he could tell this room was different. Where the others had a stale odor of dust and mold, this room gave off a headier scent, the sweet rot of old meat. It was the smell of a charnel house, carried to him on a cool breeze that shouldn't be coming from a windowless room. Christian Hillenbrand appeared next to him, scratching his red beard nervously. Your torch, Johann said. Christian tipped the flame <clears throat> into the room. The room was circular in shape, its walls and floor fashioned from bare stone. Shackles on long chains had been bolted to the walls, two up high, two on the floor, all along the circumference of the room. Christian shouted for the others to come see what they'd found. The men came running, and Johann followed them into the room, the cool breeze chilling the nervous sweat on his back. The draft, he realized, was coming from a round pit at the center of the room. He stepped around the dark hole and took a closer look at the room around him. The stone walls were stained with dried blood. Edwin was the first to say it, though most of them were already thinking it. They're dead. I knew it. Everyone he took from the village, this is where he killed them. But Luther shook his head. My wife Dora is still here, somewhere in the castle. I can feel it. The hissing whispers came again, louder than before, piercing Johann's skull like needles. He fell to his knees, dropped the dagger and Bible, and covered his ears. The others winced and stumbled in confusion. Johann squeezed his eyes shut, trying to silence the voices. They were filled with such hatred and fury that he felt himself being swept up in the emotion, gritting his teeth and banging his fists against the sides of his head. When he opened his eyes, the room seemed darker, as if the torches had dimmed. But it wasn't the torches, he realized in horror. It was the shadows. They were growing, overpowering the light. Thick black vines of shadow reached out for them. He squeezed his eyes shut again and heard one of the men near him scream, a hoarse, wet sound that cut off suddenly. He heard cries of confusion, the sound of blades cutting uselessly through the air, rifle shots ricocheting off the stone walls, and more screams. He felt fingers brushing his face, icy and sharp. He forced his eyes open. Shadows filled the room, lashing from the walls like tentacles, wrapping around men and dragging them into dark corners. The whispers were deafening. Shapes moved within the shadows, grinning skulls and clawed hands, but his mind fought to reject the images. This couldn't be happening. Someone grabbed his shoulder from behind. He flinched and cried out, but then he heard Baron's voice. Father, are you all right? Baron reached under his arms and helped him to his feet. We're boxed in. We can't. A thick black wall of shadow passed between them, knocking Baron to the floor. The shadows swirled over the big man, and Johann caught a glimpse of a bony hand slashing Baron's left cheek, leaving a deep red cut. Another cry caught his attention, and Johann turned to see a column of shadows dragging Christian Hillenbrand toward a wall. Frozen in fear, he expected to hear Christian slam into the stones, but instead he vanished into the dark as if the wall weren't there. This couldn't be happening. 
Henry, still gripping his rifle, was pulled into the air and spun around like a toy. His boot struck Johann's cheek and the priest fell backwards. Henry screamed and tumbled to the floor, bouncing off the edge of the pit and disappearing into the darkness below. Johann scrabbled for the dagger he dropped, then slashed at the shadows all around him, but the blade only passed through them harmlessly. The shadows and the shapes inside groped for him. A wispy tendril touched the silver cross around his neck and jerked back suddenly. The deafening whispers turned to screeches of pain. Thinking quickly, Johann dropped the dagger and grabbed the cross with both hands, holding it out before him as far as the chain would allow. The shadows pulled back, shrieking. He rose to his feet and turned in a circle with the cross. The shadows around him thrashed and recoiled. His throat hurt, he realized suddenly, a raw, shredding pain, and only then did he realize he was still screaming in terror. The shadows retreated, disappearing like smoke into the cracks between the stones. The light from the remaining torches flared brightly again. Laughing with relief, Johann kissed the cross and clasped it tight. Baron sat up from the floor, wiping blood from the deep wound on his cheek. Luther and Edwin glanced around in confusion. Where are the others, Luther asked. Johann stopped laughing. Ten men had entered the room, he remembered, but now there were only four. Yet there were no bodies anywhere. The shadows must have dragged the others away, he realized, just like they'd done to Christian Hillenbrand, pulled them into the darkness. They're dead, he said. Baron stood up, shaking his head in disbelief. All of them? Not all, a voice answered. It was Henry, echoing from deep inside the pit. They gathered around the edge and peered down into the inky blackness. I hurt my knee, Henry said. I think I can walk, but I'm going to need help getting out of here. Hang on, Edwin called down. He turned to the others. It looks deep. We'll need a rope. There's a tunnel down here, too, Henry called up to them. I can feel the air moving. It's cold and it smells rank, but at least that means it leads somewhere. Toss down a torch and let's see. Luther dropped his torch into the pit. It spiraled down through the darkness and landed on a dirt floor 25 feet below. Henry picked up the torch, the flickering flame illuminating his face. Don't go anywhere, Luther called down to him. I don't know if the shadows or whatever they are are coming back. Then I suggest you hurry, Henry said. They didn't have a rope, so they cut the chains out of the moorings in the walls, knotted them together, and secured one end to a thick metal bolt in the floor. Using the shackles as hand and footholds, all four of them climbed down into the pit. Henry's knee was raw and bloody, but he could stand. Took you long enough, he said. He strapped his rifle across his back and pulled tentatively on the chains to see if they would hold him. So, who gets to lift me up on his shoulders? Hold on, Edwin said. He went to the wall where the pitch-black mouth of a tunnel opened into the pit. Where do you think it leads? Baron sniffed the air. It smells like an abattoir. You don't need to tell me, Henry said. I've been breathing it longer than you have. From deep inside the tunnel came the sound of a heavy object sliding along the dirt. Edwin jumped back. Something's in there, he said. They heard it again, a sound like dragging footsteps. It's coming this way. Henry pulled his rifle off his back. Johann gripped his cross tightly and stared into the tunnel. As the shuffling grew closer, an important question occurred to him too late. Why would the necromancer have a pit in the middle of the room where he tortured his victims? <laughs> the only purpose it could serve was as a place to throw their remains when he was done with them. But there were no bodies on the floor, no bones. A shape appeared in the mouth of the tunnel. Johann and the others backed away. The figure kept to the shadows. 
but pale white fingers, their nails crusty and black, gripped the stone wall at the edge of the tunnel. Edwin leveled his torch, and the flickering orange light revealed a boy in his late teens, tall, skinny, and as pale as fresh snow. His lips had been sewn together with thick wire. Slabs of metal had been bolted to parts of his flesh, and fork-like tines covered his eyes. You poor child, Johann said, stepping forward. What have they done to you? We can help. We can get you out of here. The boy tilted his head at the sound of his voice, and Johann realized he was blind. He took another step closer. Are there others like you who need help? The boy grabbed Johann and wrapped his fingers around the priest's neck. His grip was as cold and hard as iron. The boy's throat bobbed as he tried to giggle, a string of drool escaping between the metal stitches in his lips. Yo <clears throat> Johann couldn't break away. He felt dizzy and desperate for air. He shouldn't have let go of the cross, he thought. If he survived this day, he promised God he would never let go of it again. Baron grabbed him, trying to pull him back while Luther pried the boy's fingers off his neck. Johann fell to the floor, coughing and massaging his throat. The boy groped for Luther's face. Henry stepped up, cocking the double hammers of his rifle, and aimed it at the boy. The boy lurched forward, and the torchlight revealed a dark port wine stain on the side of his face. A birthmark. Johann recognized it right away and turned to Henry in horror. Henry Mantell lowered the gun. Abelard, he said. It was barely a whisper. The boy jerked abruptly at the sound of Henry's voice. Son, is that, is that really you? Shoot it, Edwin cried. Look at it, man. Are you blind? It's not your boy anymore. Henry ignored him. You're alive, he said as the thing groped toward him. I thought you were dead. All these years you were still here, alive. Henry, don't be a fool, Johann rasped. Take it down. The thing that had once been Abelard Mantell reached blindly for his father's face. Edwin dropped his torch, grabbed the rifle out of Henry's limp hands, and aimed for Abelard's head. The boy, hearing the sudden movement, turned to face him, wrapping two worm-white fingers around the barrel. Edwin squeezed the trigger, obliterating half of Abelard's hand and putting a big wet hole in the boy's head. Johann winced as blood and bone spattered his clothes. Abelard fell. Stunned, Henry dropped to his knees beside the body of his son. He touched it, then yanked his hand away. You're so cold. He shook his head. What did he do to you? Luther put a hand on his shoulder and said, Henry. What did that monster do to my boy? Henry raged, sobbing. His cry brought a reply from inside the tunnel. Moans echoed off the walls and the sound of more feet dragging along the dirt floor. There's more of them, Baron said. We have to get out of here now. Johann stood, picked up the torch Edwin had dropped, and moved to the mouth of the tunnel for a better look. The light didn't penetrate very far, but he could sense them out there, dozens of them, maybe more. The stench of rotting meat was overpowering. They dragged Henry away from his son's body, then helped him up the makeshift rope. They climbed up after him, one at a time. Johann went last, and his muscles ached as he wrapped his legs around the chains and pulled himself up with one hand while holding the torch with the other. When he reached the top, the others grabbed him and pulled him quickly over the edge and onto the floor of the torture chamber. Luther pulled the chain up quickly so nothing could follow them. Johann looked down into the pit. He heard figures shuffling below, saw chalk-white hands groping up out of the darkness. Beside him, Barand asked, Is this what the necromancer did to the ones he took? I hope not all of them, Johann said. 
Baron stared at the pale, grasping hands below. Do you, do you think Rebecca is down there? Is she one of them now? If Henry's voice was changed, she... He trailed off, his breath hitching. Johann pulled Baron away from the pit. Don't torture yourself with such thoughts. Baron squeezed his eyes shut. I can't help it. It's all I can see in my mind. Johann found his Bible and dagger on the floor and picked them up. She's at peace now, Baron. The things down there aren't alive. They're only empty shells. The necromancer's puppets and nothing more. Baron turned away. I can't bear to think of her like that. Then don't, Luther said. He picked up a fallen musket and tossed it to Berend. Have your vengeance instead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. So how can people get it if they order it on, on phone? Uh, Amazon, Barnes Noble, all the usual places that you might and buy. And the title is? Again? Oh, In the Shadow of the Axe. Okay, and hopefully the print edition will be out soon. Fingers crossed. Yeah, okay. All right, we're going to take about a 10-minute break. Um, we'll see you in a few minutes. Uh, we're going to start. Hello there. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, the second half. And tonight our second reader is Michael Sisko who is the author of several novels, including The Divinity Student, The Narrator, The Great Lover, Animal Money, and a short story collection, Secret Hours, plus a new novel, The Wretch of the Sun. Um, his fiction has appeared in The Weird, Lovecraft Unbound, and Black Wings, among other places. His scholarly work has appeared in Lovecraft Studies, The Weird Fiction Review, Iranian studies and Lovecraft and influence. He lives and teaches in New York City. Please welcome Michael Sisko. Thank you. Uh, can you all hear me if I talk at this level? As you can see, I have a bit of a frog in my throat, and so, um, but on the other hand, I have this sort of very white baritone now. So if you start getting turned on, it's okay. I'll understand. Actually, if you're turned on by this, I won't understand, and I'll be deeply, <laughs> deeply disturbed. Um, so again, thank you very much to Matt and Ellen for having me, to all of you for coming out on this wretched evening. Uh, but what better way to celebrate a wretched evening than reading a wretched book? Um, Tell us about your tie. <laughs> this is dead stock, is what they call this. This is actual 1940s necktie. It's a swing tie, and it's never, it was never worn, and, uh, except by me, unless, unless you're not telling me something. But, uh, so that's one. I like them. Uh, I have a horrifically big collection, and I could make you even more bored than you will be by way of what I'm about to read if I were to tell you about my neckties, which I will not do. So this is a book called The Wretch of the Sun, uh, published by that guy. It's his fault. Derek Hussey, right over there at Hippocampus Press. So thanks, thank you again to, to Derek for having uh, published this book. Uh, there's some of it back there. Let me just get into it. So I'm going to start by reading the Smarty Pants preface, and that's not what it's called, that's what I'm calling it, uh, and then we'll get into some bits and pieces of the narrative. I wrote this a while ago uh, during uh, the Bush years. Um, it has lamentably become all too relevant. Yeah. <laughs> you said it. So... In effect, yeah. I mean, part of what I was trying to do was sort of combine a, a discussion of things like secret police with a sense of being haunted or a haunted house, because I always wanted to write a haunted house novel. 
and in particular uh, a Shirley Jackson-esque haunted house novel. So this mess, I mean this fine piece of literature is the result. So I'll start with the preface. The haunted house is, among other things, a manifestation of the concept of secrecy, which encompasses both concealing and revealing. A house whose ethereal visitants and ethereal occupants are never discovered, whose secrets are kept perfectly, and whose invisible contents never become visible, will not acquire a haunted reputation. Maybe the most well-known haunted houses are the ones populated by the most incompetent ghosts. <laughs> Does this mean that we only know the botched jobs? <laughs> the blunderers who can't keep a secret? If so, it would suggest that the really excellent haunted houses are the ones in which nothing out of the ordinary ever seems to occur. <laughs> On the other hand, it might mean that a secret must be known in order to be a secret. A secret is precisely the known thing. The open secret is the thing that everyone knows without knowing that they know and is the biggest of secrets. To be known for, haunt, for haunting, a house must conceal a secret imperfectly, and it must be the secret itself that by its very nature and not primarily through any other agency persistently resists concealment. A haunted house draws attention to the existence of its secret, and will even go so far as to provide some inquirers with what appear to be clues to the unraveling of its riddle. That riddle, however, can never be unraveled. It's just activity, enjoyment. The Gothic novel took the form of a whirl of stories within stories. Yikes. Explaining one story by means of another, which then stood in need of an explanatory story of its own, and so on, building a house of cards with no foundation but storytelling. In the ghost story, the tale of an encounter with an apparition is followed by the explanatory story, recollected by the decrepit former servant or extracted from a suggestively incomplete archaic document which identifies the lovers who committed suicide or the hanged man or the abandoned child. But knowing what these ghosts once were tells us nothing about what they are now. Where and how they exist or what their experience of events is like. Why should natural laws bend to serve what appears to be, at least, human justice? The story is explained by means of unexplained explanations, which only open out into deeper mysteries. A haunted house is a house with its own story. A ghost is someone about whom stories are told who is unable to tell his or her own story. Death can be understood as the inability to tell one's own story. Whether that death is literal is another question. Ghosts exist in imagination, which is real. A story, to be a told story, needs a listener or a reader. Ghosts, as I've been saying, appear to need someone to whom to appear. So we discover the story of the suicides, and we solve the riddle 
alongside the narrating busybody of the story, and bury the bones together in one grave, the disturbances cease. But a house once haunted will always be haunted. It isn't the disturbance, but the story that haunts it. The haunted house draws attention to the secret it keeps, like a master who teases his pupils with unanswerable riddles, or like secret police, who can't be entirely effective if they are entirely secret. These aren't questions that contain their own answers, like math problems. I do not have the answer any more than you do. Because the answer isn't in the question, the answer is to leave behind the idea that a question is a door that an answer pulls finally shut. Once we've dutifully recited to the last syllable everything we know, we are chastened or even taken aback by the paltry incommensurability of what we've just said with the haunted wealth that extends within and without us in all directions. At that moment, the suggestive ambivalence of a story will have to seem, seem truer than the abbreviation of a hollow answer. Now, this novel weaves together a number of different narratives. There's one about a police officer whose name cycles through all the letters of the alphabet, one after another. Because I'm that kind of writer, sorry. <laughs> So first he's A, and then he's B, and then he's C, and so on and so on. Because he's everybody, he's nobody. But he has a vision. He sees a vision of the sun. He also sees some mysterious secret police he wasn't aware of before, and they end up, uh, well, making off with him. So that's part of his story. And then there's another story involving a couple of college students, and we'll touch on them in a minute. So our police officer, with the rotating name, is apprehended by these mysterious secret police who in the book are eventually called Ukehi. It's not a name that means anything. It's just sort of an all-purpose sinister name like Stasi or Gestapo. <laughs> so they grabbed him. A barren room with two high windows or vents near the ceiling. Footsteps rasping on the floor, brush trash aside. The air on his bare, wet legs is cold. He's in his undershirt and shorts. There's a gag in his mouth, and his wrists are tightly bound to the arms of a dentist's chair. Four heads appear above him. He can feel the warmth of their bodies through their uniforms as they close together with him in the middle. Street sounds come in with the daylight through the vents, the sound of a bus he can smell a little diesel. The bus is revving. His fingers are like ice. The bus groans, and its voice rises to a howl as it pulls forward. There's a sustained, swelling roar that gets louder and louder and does not dwindle as if the bus were standing still, as if, there, as if it were only the recording of a bus. He looks from one face to another, as if there were still some way to escape through them. The faces altogether suddenly tense. They bend over his body with tools in their hands. Skipping ahead a bit. 
They record him and play back his screams. Sometimes when they are leaving him alone, and other times they make him do a duet with himself. They explain that one of their number was impersonating him with his wife. They had films of her entertaining a number of them. Later, that she has been arrested. They pull stunts on him straight out of comic books. They parade him in front of clean people. He is always too hot or too cold, tired, hungry, in pain. They pull out some of his teeth. They gash his face. Let a dog chew one of his ears off. Cut his scrotum open. They want to know why he is a liar and a traitor. Why he wants to destroy the state. And how he plans to do it. They pile nonsensical demands on top of each other and then beat him down before he can do one thing. On some day or other, he is dragged from his closet and flung into a station wagon with no windows in the back. The door slams with a jolt he can feel through the car. Two more up from, up, up, from up ahead. The engine fires up. His body begins to jostle with the movement of the car. His eyes are still adjusting to the light. Sparkling sunlight. Branches, a smell of... Branches, a, a smell of dusty ground, wet with dew. They stop. The men get out in silence. They go behind the car. He waits. They haul him out suddenly. He is stepping high through tall weeds into a stand of slender trees. A sudden rush of terror nearly cuts his legs from under him and he staggers. The men shoving him don't speak a word. He hears the rushing wind, a few bird calls, as sharp and distinct as any he's ever heard. Up ahead, he sees more men in plain clothes and three others in their underwear with hoods over their heads. They are standing like votaries with shaking knees like him, barely able to stand. The image has the persistence and clarity of a painting. They are right up to the brink of a huge trench that he can already smell. Peas, that's him, hands are roughly tied, and suddenly with a dull flap there's a cloth bag over his head. He fills it almost at once with hot, stinking breath in a panic and stumbles forward. The men casually point their carbines at the backs of the captives without bothering to aim all that carefully. They fire. The captives are ripped apart and fall down dead. Q, same line turns as he falls and lands on his side. The captives fall into the pit at their feet. Clouds of flies scatter as they fall. The men withdraw in silence. The flies settle down once more. They flit down in broken spirals. Some pain from the fall into the pit. The stink Strength undiminished, though, and coming back in confusion. He's all right. He was missed. R begins working his hands vigorously. One suddenly springs free, and he gets up to his knees. He claws off his hood. He stares all around him at the corpses, the trees. He stares at the golden sun 
which seems to hover among the trees like a dazzling, glaring, calmly, curious, blazing will-o'-the-wisp beckoning to him. Eyes starting from his head, he lurches to his feet, climbs up out of the trench, and runs toward the sun. There's a break. Our next character, he's one of these college students. His name is Salada. He's very strange. He gets migraines, and he has visions during his migraines. And he doesn't know these are visions. He just thinks they're fantasies, but they're actually real. If he could jump around like a maniac while staying fast asleep, that would satisfy Celada. In this nervous, irritable, groggy, sparking, bachelorized state. On the street, every now and then, he would encounter those fierce, closed faces, the faces belonging to a sullen tribe of intense, earnest, high-strung young white men, always insulted on short death leash of shame, and when discussing life, they toss off the most extreme-sounding views with every indication of a long and easy familiarity with them and of no real experience. And sometimes words so violent come from them that even they are abashed. Those words teenage too much, They are all two obvious tokens of a visitor from a foggy, naively grim inner world. Salada is hurrying to be only a little late for his appointment with Dr. Kraplin. Now something about Ukehi. At first he thought the name was something else, maybe Old English. Kraplin once said that in politics the philosopher's stone is despair, which is a far better weapon than terror. But this is just glib talk, he added right away. There's still plenty of terror to go around. (laughs) Ukehi, the correct name, is the secret police. That is, the people keep them a secret from themselves. Just Salada's fancy. Plainclothes police, watchers everywhere. That exciting atmosphere of informing and spying. And seeing the signs and understanding them disappearances. The secret police are just like ghosts, he thinks. They watch, but are unseen. They mark their victims and wait until each is alone to pounce. They mark their victims. They're not supposed to exist. And in fact, Salada mistakenly believes they are only a figment of his imagination. That his imaginings might coincide exactly with the truth never occurs to him. What does Ukehi do? Brief pause as Salada changes buses. Answer. It doesn't matter. It all lies in what they could do. And might. And when. Whenever. And why? Why ever? Through the magic of secrecy, all knots are undone. One difficulty is this. Every now and then, the children of the affluent and influential imbibe a radical idea or two. Some even come up with them on their own. And naturally, these have to be handled more carefully than hoi polloi. They bring a sense of entitlement to the wrong side of the equation. The isolados present little difficulty. They tend to assume they are the only people in history to have had that particular idea. 
And certainly, they are not unjustified in believing themselves to be somewhat of a rara avis in terrace for believing it. So they neutralized themselves in snobbish martyrdom. But for all this to function, certain barriers have to stay up and camouflage, and people have to be kept apart. And more vigorous measures taken when someone endeavors to sap or undermine the force fields. Ukehi exists for this. Just a fantasy. Do they work for the domestic spying administration? Or the shattered remnant of the military? Or are they a private organization for hire? The question isn't interesting any more than it is all that interesting to think about heaven or hell, wherever ghosts go when they have given up haunting the living. The haunted house and the country rotten with spies. But they aren't really the same. The haunted house, at least the one Selada is thinking of, is the shrine where life triumphs over death, perfection actually manifesting itself. The country is haunted by death. Spectral hangman. The ghosts of Songlade, this is the haunted house in the book. Songlade is its name are frightening because they are too perfect to see without going insane or being injured somehow by the intensity of adoration. Ukehi is frightening because they will torture and kill you. They are elementals of sordidness and cruelty. All right. One more little bit. Salada's migraine speaks at the window. Abandoned pilgrims fill the streets. The streets bulge with pilgrims. The city is in the desert. Desert grit blows over it. The buildings are tawny. The sky, mad blue. The pilgrims adorn themselves in an unheard-of way, and familiar things are lost among the strange stuff they have on. They walk strangely, their speech is a wailing that is strident without being mournful. The whites of their eyes startle. They raise an arm and shake bang bangles down from the width of their hands. Their shrine is invisible behind the densely crowded trees. Glisten slides over them like clear oil in the sun. Glass pilgrims filled with colored gases that don't mix. Divided into internal compartments and electrified by the sun. Huge gobs of mercury they might be keeping as pets slide to and fro on walking, talking carpenters' levels. Wailing voices lighten the air, adding a pale, clear light, the kind preceding a fall of snow. Their polished metal shrine is glass veins or sails, and a coterie of bronze figures seem carved out of the gloom in the shade of the boughs of the trees. Thoughtful black men with arms crossed or folded behind their backs half dematerialized into the dark and fashioned for the eye by dim streaks of glisten. The pilgrims have brought offerings of glisten to recharge the shrine. They have a shining metal vessel, vital missile, sanguine blade, a song, a lay, a steely brittle vessel, brittle Brittle, tested, a metal saw, braid, prattle, brass, steely, vital, metal, pedal, modal, idle, stop, stop, stop. 
migraine, each grain of hurt, pile up. Don't rhyme. Don't alliterate. Don't assonate. Or the other with a consonant. Eternal consonation to sound with, sound with thing. Lie down. He still sees the window. Don't rhyme. Don't set words off. Put them down one at a time with care. The black figures, the pilgrims, their offering, the shrine. There is a metal device, a container, ornamented container. They carry on a they are surrounded by men in long coats with hats pulled down nearly covering their eyes or are they men in generic down jackets blue jeans and baseball caps but there they are shooting from behind cars and out of windows into the crowd screams erupt from the middle the container carried by the pilgrims is damaged by the gunfire pilgrims running in all directions complete confusion a few lie crumpled by the side of the road. The colored gases inside them turn drab, curdle, and blubber from transparent elastic wounds to form milky puddles in the street. A truck driven by beefy men in plain clothes pulls into the scene. On it there is a huge spinning gray egg that churns inside like an upset stomach, like his head, so hot on top and empty and open on the sides. Drive in a spike for relief. There's sunlight beaming down in octagons out of a white sky. And two orange lovers, spirits out of an old nudie movie, strolling in the exuberantly lush meadow. She's looking at him directly. He groans and raises his hands to his head without touching it, wanting to squeeze the skull until it bursts and imagining a relief so great he'd moan with bliss, even with blood and brains oozing from splintered bone, knowing miserably that there will be no relief. Just a begrudging, long-drawn ebbing out. On that note, I'll end. Thank you very much. <laughs> books out there that you can buy if you want. We have a few books back there and you can get the author's assignment so go for it and have another drink before it will be all eat. And uh, see you all next month. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.